Welcome to Managed Care Cast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Maggie Shaw, editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. High deductible health plans, or HDHPs, have gained traction in recent years as a means to reduce unnecessary health care spending. The monthly premiums are low, but the high deductibles can lead to higher downstream costs for individuals and families. Potential downsides include the risk of patients deterring or avoiding unnecessary care. A team headed by Dr. Matthew Eisenberg from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health recently investigated the impact of HDHPs through the lens of the ongoing epidemic of substance use disorder, or SUD, in the United States. The article detailing their study's findings appears in the October issue of the American Journal of Managed Care. On this episode of Managed Care Cast, we speak with Dr. Eisenberg on his team's findings that these plans may have reduced such service use through the shifting of costs to their members, thereby exacerbating this already troubling epidemic that has resulted in declines in life expectancy and increases in drug and alcohol-related deaths. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Eisenberg. Before we begin, can you please introduce yourself to our listening audience and tell us about your work? Sure. Thanks so much for for having me here today. So my name is Matthew Eisenberg. I'm an associate professor and associate chair in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, My work is focused on the intersection between uh, health economics and mental health and substance use disorder care. The study of yours that we are discussing today appears in the October issue of the American Journal of Managed Care, and it focuses on high deductible health plans and the impact they have on use of and spending on substance use disorder services. Can you give us a brief synopsis of this study and its main findings? Sure. So. The basic, let me take a step back and talk about just the basic motivation for the study and why we wanted to do it. So on one hand, we see all across the country, the prevalence of high deductible health plans, those types of plans that require you to pay $1,000, sometimes $2,000 out of pocket before your health insurance kicks in. These high deductible health plans or HDHPs are becoming a lot more common across the employer-sponsored market. So these plans are everywhere. At the same time, we're seeing the rates of uh, substance use disorder increasing. We're seeing the rates uh, specifically of opiate use disorder increasing. And uh, the opiate overdose crisis in America, uh, though it seemed to plateau a little bit in 2019, has now kind of continued to explode as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we know that HDHP prevalence is going up. We know that substance use disorder is going up. And we know that substance use disorder is really, really undertreated. Only about one in 10 folks in the US who need substance use disorder treatment actually receive substance use disorder treatment. So the question we asked ourselves is, are these plans, are these high deductible health plans contributing 
to this undertreatment of substance use disorder. So that was our main research question. How do these HDHPs impact substance use disorder treatment? Now, what we wanted to do is a comparison. And we wanted to say, let's compare. Um, uh, we can't do a randomized trial, right? So we want to do a what's called a natural experiment, where we look at some comparison group that never enrolled in a high deductible health plan. And then we look at some treatment group or intervention group that did not enroll in a high deductible health plan and then all of a sudden did. So we want to compare a control group and a treatment group before and after the change. The challenge, it's hard to look at folks who enroll in these plans because they're choosing to enroll in these plans. So they might look different than those who chose not to enroll in those plans. And then we might end up misattributing uh, a causal relationship to just a correlation. So our approach in this study is to instead look at the effect of a firm or an employer offering a high deductible health plan. Because to me, I work at my employer, it's not up to me whether my employer decides to offer one. So that helps us break apart a little bit of that uh, cor inferring uh, correlation as causation problem. So that was a very long lead up. You asked for the main findings, so I'll get to the punchline. The punchline is when we look at folks who were offered a high-deductible health plan by their employer compared to folks who were not offered a high-deductible health plan by their employer, those folks who were offered a plan used about 6.6 uh, .6 or almost 7% less substance use disorder services. So it definitely appears that HDHPs are associated with using fewer substance use disorder treatment services. One of your principal conclusions was the potential for undertreatment of SUDs because of cost shifting, placing the financial burden on the patient. What role does financial burden in the form of treatment cost and patient inability to pay out of pocket have in the current drug epidemic? I mean, it can pay, play a really significant role. Um, so the mechanism by which HDHPs reduce spending is through greater um, immediate financial stress on uh, the patient, right? HDHPs require you to pay all this money out of pocket. So there, there is a financial burden onto the patient there. This could really uh, play into our current drug epidemic and overdose crisis because when you look at the range of different treatments out there, one of the things we find in this study was we looked separately at lower cost treatments like medications to treat opiate use disorder, um, which are relatively cheap and have a wide evidence base. And we also looked at more intensive treatments like uh, residential treatment, like 30-day residential uh, rehab treatments. And what we found was that the reduction in spending attributable to high deductible health plans was almost entirely driven by medication spending and by more outpatient spending. So even though these treatments are lower cost and have a higher evidence base, the financial burden is still influencing um, folks to not use these low cost evidence-based treatments, which is unfortunate from a public health perspective. Are there any positives to HDHPs besides the obvious low upfront costs 
if patients are only on the hook for an elevated deductible when they need care the most, whether that be for a substance use disorder or a newly diagnosed chronic illness? Sure. So like with anything, there's a lot of uh, trade-offs here, right? So there, there are, you know, maybe we focused on a, a quote negative of HDHPs in this study, right? The reduction in substance use disorder treatment, but there, there are a host of positives as well, right? So one, as you mentioned, is lower upfront costs. Um, this is lower premiums for um, both the uh, enrollee and um, the employer, right? In terms of which folks might benefit most from an HDHP, there's two types that could come out financially um, in the black from an HDHP. One is the, the younger, healthier um, enrollee. So if you are, uh, I was talking with a colleague um, the other day who's a, a new assistant professor, right? And he said, I think I'm gonna go with the HDHP because he's young um, and he doesn't really have any health conditions, um, perfectly healthy. And that type of person is gonna save quite a bit of money in an HDHP. The other type of person who might save in an HDHP, and this is a little bit counterintuitive, is the type of person who's really sick and knows they're gonna be really sick. Because if you know, if you have a $2,000 deductible, but you know for sure that you're gonna spend way more than $2,000 in healthcare in a given year, then you can set that money aside throughout the year to pay for that and bank that lower premium costs. So it's almost the folks who do who can do the most well with these types of plans are those who have some degree of certainty on either side, right? So if you're certain, you're going to have very low um, expenditures, or you're certain you're going to have very high expenditures, these plans can be beneficial. If you fall in the middle, where a lot of folks do, right, where I'm feeling relatively healthy, but, you know, something bad could happen, um, that's where it can really start to have a, a financial um, effect on folks. What are the top factors to consider when deciding to offer an HDHP? So this is a, a great question. It's one that employers are asking themselves um, all the time, right? There's two that I would um, suggest to employers and uh, health benefits um, managers when they're thinking about whether or not to include this in their offerings. One is the overall health of their population. Um, so if you have a very young, uh, healthy population, they're probably gonna like this type of plan, right? If your employee base is on the older side and has more um, uh, conditions, they may not like this plan as much. The second thing that I think is overlooked is you should also look at the financial literacy of your employee base, right? These plans depend on being able to understand the kind of complex dynamics of how deductibles reset over the course of the year and how your out-of-pocket exposure changes depending on when you're receiving that care. Financial literacy is really important in understanding that. And if folks do have a lower level of financial literacy, it's really incumbent on the employer, I think, to offer some type of help to understand um, how the finances work with one of these plans in parallel to offering it. Did any of your findings surprise you? It's a tough one. You know, I'm a scientist, so I always want to pretend, oh, no, we have perfect hypotheses. Nothing nothing surprised me. But one thing um, did. Um, I was very surprised. We saw no change in um, the use of high-cost residential um, services for, like, 30-day rehabs for the treatment of substance use disorder. In my mind, 
I thought, well, this is the most expensive type of care or one of the most expensive types of care. This should be the area where folks are really motivated to change their behavior, right? Now on the flip side, but we didn't see that. On the flip side, I could, I could say it makes sense that we didn't see that because the decision to go into a residential treatment facility is not one that's taken lightly. And it's not one that's taken for a um, mild condition, right? That's usually a situation where uh, uh, the condition has proceeded to be quite severe. Um, so I'm an economist by training. We'd say that the demand for that care is relatively inelastic, which means that it doesn't really matter how much it costs. When you need it, you need it. If I broke my leg, it really doesn't matter how much it costs. I have to go to the hospital. If you're in really acute crisis, with substance use disorder, you need more intensive services. What can plans or HDHPs do to support public health efforts to improve substance use disorder care? I think one thing that they could do, you're starting to see a little bit more, or you saw a little bit more of this in other settings with the pandemic, is you can carve out what's uh, susceptible to the deductible and what's not. You know, for a while, the only area where this happened was preventive screenings, where in your annual wellness visit that, you know, did not require out-of-pocket spending. So that was um, uh, uh, not subject to the deductible. Then in the pandemic, we saw a lot more experimentation with this. We saw a lot of employers say, you know, all telemedicine is not going to be subject to the deductible, or maybe telemental health is not going to be subject to the deductible, as a way of kind of a, a a gimme to folks dealing with the crisis of the uh, uh, the pandemic. We should, you know, especially self-insured employers have a great deal of flexibility in how they design um, these plans. And if you want to improve SUD care, you should carve out the types of care that are evidence-based and lower cost, right? Because that's high value. If it works and is lower cost, that's the definition of high value. So specifically, I'm thinking about medication treatment, especially for opiate use disorder, has a wide evidence base and is, is lower cost. And it re we really should not be uh, having any disincentives towards receiving that type of care. What's next? Do you have any additional investigations or studies planned? Sure. So I'll, I'll talk about very, very briefly, I'll talk about three that are in various stages of the, the research process. One is um, we did an analysis that was published a couple months ago in Psychiatric Services, um, where we looked at um, those with substance use disorder and mental health conditions, co-occurring mental health conditions, to see if where the reductions in spending were um, uh, attributable to an HDHP if someone had co-occurring conditions. Um, and we saw that they were um, pretty evenly split. However, that medication was still the number one thing that was cut, both substance use disorder medication, or if you had a mental health condition, psychotropic medication was also cut in response to a, a hydroxyl health plan. The second thing we're looking at, and I have a, a, um, a meeting right after this recording to talk about the results from this project, which is looking at um, chronic pain treatment and hydroxyl health plans. One of the drivers to the opioid crisis is uh, the treatment of chronic pain and prescribing opioids. So we'll be looking in that project of how hydroxyl health plans um, uh, impact chronic pain treatment. And third, the thing we care about, you know, we care about these things like service use and spending like this paper, but we also care about folks' health. 
So we have a paper um, under review right now looking at the effect of hydroalcohol health plans on opioid overdose, um, which is the ultimate health outcome that we really um, care about. So uh, a lot more work to do in this space um, and happy to uh, contribute to it. If I can just ask one more question. So would you say that there are some definite positives to HDHPs, but they could use some fine tuning? Yeah, I would definitely say that. I think like anything, there's trade-offs. Um, and we have to think about the, the very rarely in health policy, are we left with a, a, a pure good or a pure bad? Um, so it's useful to think through what the positive implications and what the negative implications of, of something are. Um, so I think that's, um, uh, there are definitely positives here and worth um, uh, thinking carefully through as you described in the fine tuning of this to make sure it's trying to maximize the good and minimize the bad. Well, that was the last question I had. Are there any closing thoughts you would like to add? Not at the moment, but thanks so much for having me on. And I always appreciate the discussion and the opportunity to share my work with the, the readership of uh, the American Journal of Managed Care. So thank you. Well, on behalf of myself, AJMC, and our audience, thank you for speaking with us today on this very important topic. We really do appreciate your time. Thank you. For all of us at AJMC.com, thanks for listening. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.